Hello and welcome back to episode five of Foolishly Faithful, a Mets podcast. The date is March 7th, 2023. Mets spring training is still underway and we have about a week's worth of games under uh, the team's belt. Um, so we'll be recapping those. We'll also be jumping in uh, in honor of Women's History Month to so history of some of the Mets ownership. Um, and we'll also take a little look ahead to opening day. So I'm joined again by Steve, David, and Ray. Um, and guys, let's jump into some of the, the chatter from this past week of spring training. Which we got like so far. Yeah. So uh, uh, yeah. since we last talked, uh, March 2nd, the Mets have gone three and two. Uh, and they are currently in a battle with the Astros right now as we speak. And it was an eventful five games. So a lot of action. I was excited about Sunday. Sunday was a big game for us. I know that was a day that we were all looking forward to. That's right. And on Sunday, if I'm not mistaken, Kodai Senga finally took the mound in a Mets uniform and was able to show off some of his good stuff. Definitely. Um, yep. That's exactly what happened. We also saw the other horses on the mound as well. We saw Verlander and Scherzer take the mound this past weekend as well. Um, and of course, there are some injury concerns looking ahead, um, which is never good for anyone in the Mets uniform. Yeah, that was one of the downsides to Sunday's game. Um, after Senga's two innings, um, Quintana came in, and I, I guess most of Mets faithful know where, where he's, he lies for our future. Yep, and we also got to see a lot of our young players continue their tear through spring training, playing like they want to be in the club when we head north. So I guess with not... that, we can, uh, you know, jump into some topics in a little more detail. And uh, uh, David, you want to take it away with uh, leading our first topic? Yeah, uh, just to update and recap Quintana, it looks like he's out indefinitely with a left rib stress fracture. I'm not sure how that happened. I feel like usually you got to not a doctor. Usually the rib fractures come from impacts. I haven't seen any word on him, any impact, I guess, just stress fracture. I guess just built up on it. Um, Yeah. Indefinitely. I mean, hopefully he's good for the season. It seems like depending on the severity, they're saying it's a small stress fracture. So hopefully that's good. So, I mean, I, it seems like depending on the severity, it could be anywhere from like eight to 12 weeks. Um, If there's no, um, yeah, if there's no, like, surgery, um, he's definitely missing the World Baseball Classic, though, and he's definitely missing opening day. So, at the very least, he's, you know, he's going to be on that injured injured list. Um, depending on how long that is, we don't know. But, yeah, hopefully he doesn't need surgery. Hopefully he can just rest up and, yeah, hopefully he comes back quick. Yeah, at least from what I've seen online, it sounds like even a small stress fracture is, you know, four to six, maybe even eight weeks without throwing, and then he's going to have to ramp up for some time, too. You know, it seems like we might be fortunate if we get him back before the all-star break. And he didn't even look too hot in his first game. So I wonder if like this was like a lingering injury. I'm hoping that's not the case. As like he was one of our new acquisitions. It really suck if he uh, came over to us with something that uh wasn't disclosed on the injury report. So actually the Mets got him. He hasn't really had much of an injury history actually, which is interesting. So he's been in the league for, what, 2012? And he's really only had, it looks like, two other injuries, three, under, three other injuries, 2020, you know, a couple minor, and two in 2020 and one in 2021. So nothing too major. So we really got him for depth, and 
yeah this sucks yeah i think this is um you know this is this is an example of the risk that you take when you sign veteran players um you know Quintana's 34 years old and proven you know he's a, a lefty who has been reliable in rotations across different teams for a few years but that's obviously the risk you take and you hope that this is the worst of it um we hope that injuries don't really affect our other you know older older pitching staff because we really need those arms what it does though do is it opens up a spot on our rotation which is something we have a lot of depth in fortunately we probably roll you know eight or nine starters deep if we really had to get there and you know honestly i'm pretty excited for our six and seven options and that's kind of peterson and mcgill for me at least come to mind i personally I think that peterson is going to be probably the first person to get a shot he's the lefty in there and to replace the lefty who's going down and i think that he's shown a lot of promise last year and i think he's get he's deserving of the spot Obviously, McGill did as well in the beginning of the year, but I do, I do think Peterson gets a shot. How about you guys? Yeah, I like Peterson a lot. I mean, I think Peterson really showed a lot last year, and he like he had a kid in the middle of the year too, and he was just like he had to go back to Colorado and come back, and it was this whole ordeal. But he was fantastic all year. I think he um, he was able to balance between the rotation, and the bullpen, a lot easier than McGill. But I have faith in McGill too. I think he's still young. Um, I think we may have crowned him too early, but I think he's got a lot of good stuff. But um, yeah, I'm going to go with Pearson just to have the lefty in the rotation. I think it's important. What do you think, David or Ray? Um, I agree. I think that out of the two of them, Peterson definitely gets uh, the nod from me. Um, he has a lot more experience. Some good, some bad. You know, he definitely had a lot of time as a starter. And sometimes he didn't do so hot and he saw, you know, time in the bullpen. I think he's even thrown in the postseason a couple times. So, you know, he's got experience in a lot of different scenarios. Um, I know McGill pitched tonight and looking at their numbers for spring training, they aren't too different. Like Peterson, I think they both went about four innings, a um, few strikeouts apiece, not too many runs given up. So currently, you know, it looks like it could go to either of them, but I'm going to lean more towards Peterson. What do you think, David? Yeah, I'm going to agree with you guys. Um, I mean, it seems like their numbers are pretty similar throughout their careers, throughout spring training. Um, yeah, at the simplest, Quintana was a lefty and Peterson's a lefty. I feel like that just at least slots him in a little bit easier. Um, I feel like McGill had – might have had better stuff. You know, he had some injuries and stuff. Peterson really was reliable as well. Um, they're both the same age, though. I kind of think either of them could fill in where they need to. Um, yeah, what's up, Steve? Yeah, I think, I mean, McGill, I mean, Peter Peterson has a little more experience than McGill. I think that he's kind of earned his spot from last year. And unless McGill seriously outshines him during their spring training, I think, you know, that's kind of almost have to go with Peterson. Yeah. Um, yeah, McGill has, listen, I, I, I like the whole, uh, low heartbeat guy being the last season and the season before he, he shined similarly. Um, but he's, there's something, there's something that he's not, he hasn't figured out just yet. Um, and I hope that he turns a corner this year and can really be, be solid and put up good innings for, for, for games, for games, to, games at a time. 
Right. So um, from, uh, yeah. I think it kind of wraps up, you know, Quintana and I guess Peterson is we're all, we're all pretty unanimous that we're going to see him before McGill. And uh, hopefully that's like you said, the end of injuries. So let's move on to uh, the future. And I think that throughout spring training so far, we've really seen some players playing like they are dying to be on the major league team. I'm speaking primarily of our three, uh, our transfer of young uh, infielders of Beatty, Vientos, and Mauricio. And I think they continue to shine this week since our last recording. And um, yeah, I think that's, you know, going to cause ownership and coaching staff to do something with them. Uh, David, what do you think is going to be kind of the outcome of this? Where do you think we're going? I feel like Mauricio, I mean, all three of them are really doing well. I feel like we got to, I, I don't know. Mauricio is really just playing well. I know Beatty is uh, is a little more stuff there. I, I don't know. I feel like Mauricio, that he seems like he could play the outfield. I I give it to him. It seems like he's just bulked up. I know we we kind of went extensively in him a little more in the uh, previous episode, but I feel like with his power, at least, is more applicable, and he's sooner to get the call up just because of his bat and and the power um, more than the other two guys. Yeah, I, I mean, I think. Um, I think Mauricio probably starts in the minors. Um, I could see Vienta starting the minors too. Um, Beatty, I think they give a shot on opening day. Um, but all, I mean, I think that the other two could soon follow. Um, like not soon into the season, they're like we still have Darren Ruff on the roster, and Ruff, I think Darren Ruff is probably going to go the way of Robinson Cano last year, which they'll give him a month or so. He'll probably flame out and. and after a month, Stephen Stone is going to say, fuck it, pay him the $2 million or whatever he's worth and get him off the roster because we, he's just, he's striking us. <laughs> he's not playing well. Um, that's my prediction for Darren Ruff this year. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I, I'm really excited by them and I want them to see, I want to see them play really well, but it's obviously going to depend. What do you think, Ray? Um, look, I like, I like all three of these guys. Um, I kind of agree with you, Eric. As much as I also agree with David, Mauricio has the pop and he's batting really well, but I don't think it's enough to steal the position away from Lindor. And I don't think they're just going to drop him anywhere in the outfield unless they absolutely have to. Um, But speaking to Beatty, Beatty's hitting over 450. Um, he's doing, he's hitting nonstop. I think he also stole a base in tonight's game, just like in the eighth inning I saw. So, you know, he's getting it done in different different areas. And like I hate to say it, but Eduardo Escobar really isn't, you know, earning his spot. I know as a veteran with a big contract, like, you know, he's going to get the nod more often than not. But with the way that Beatty's playing, like he might get the consideration coming into opening day. And as for Vientos, like I really like him. Uh, I think he's got like the most um, plate appearances out of the three of them this this spring training, but he also has the most strikeouts. I think in twenty three appearances he's got eight strikeouts, and you know, I had to ask one of my associates to look up his minor league numbers, and apparently he had a lot of strikeouts in the minors too. So, you know, that's not really what you want to see from a young kid coming up, you know. Good pop. He had those two massive home runs the other day. But if it comes at the cost of a bunch of strikeouts, you know, maybe let him get some more action in the minors. And another kid that we haven't even mentioned was uh, Francisco Alvarez. 
that's right. Pretty much because he's not doing anything. So yes. <laughs> I guess we're going to stick with um our um, Navarez uh, acquisition at catcher. Yeah, you got any word on that, Steve? Yeah, I think that, I mean, first off, you know, I don't think that any of them are ever going to replace Lindor. He's going to be a shortstop until, you know, the end of his contract with the Mets or he can't physically be there anymore. Um, but I think that Beatty maybe forces their hand if Escobar continues to slog through spring training. Um, and we'll see how he does in the World Baseball Classic. He's going to be, you know, he's going to be playing in that. So he won't even be with the team for the rest of the spring. Uh, as you said, Ray, Beatty's kind of just knocking the cover off the ball. He's hitting close to 400 and he stole a base tonight. Um, <clears throat> only one home run, but, uh, you know, he's, he's hitting. The question for me with Beatty is can he handle third base every day? He's got three uh, errors already in spring training in 10 games, you know project that out and we're talking about 45 hours during a baseball season that's obviously you know kind of a joke of a scenario i think but he's uh you know he's got something to prove there we can't just have a black hole in defense and third base uh you know keith hernandez would, wouldn't be able to handle it he'd uh those are some jd davis numbers at base. <laughs> you know that's that's a good call you know sometimes i focus a little bit too much at, at the offense and you know the glove is a big part of the game too yeah, and I think, uh, Eric, you mentioned Darren Ruff, and it's possible that one of them kind of beats out Ruff and takes that spot as a right-handed DH. But if it's if that's what it is, to me, that's going to be Vientos because I don't think they want to move Beatty from third base. I think they see him as a third baseman of the future, and I think that Mauricio probably has to have a position in the field too. So I, I do think if it's going to be rough spot, it's going to be Vientos. Um, I think so too. And has has how much has um, Alvarez played this spring so far? I haven't seen a lot from him. I think it's eight at bats. That's shocking. No, not too many. That's weird. Uh, eight at bats, four strikeouts, and a walk. And compared yeah, to, to, to hasn't recorded a hit. And you said Vientos had twenty. How many? Twenty three at bats. That's that's such a stark difference. You'd think that they'd be playing Alvarez more. Looks like Alvarez is eleven at bats, but only one hit actually. So yeah. it might have been more updated. That might be tonight's game. game. Yeah, maybe after tonight's game. But still not good. Not actually worse. Well, I, think play every, I think Vientos could play every position in the infield and the outfield. So It I is think... interesting that they are having Vientos do some first base work as well. Yes, yep. backup heat if he's going to be around. Right, right. Um, I wonder if well, they're I waiting mean... for uh, Navarez to go to the World Baseball Classic to give Alvarez more at-bats. I didn't even think about that. That's a really good idea. Well, that that is a big upside for a lot of these young players. When everybody goes to play in the World Baseball Classic, how many of these young kids are going to get extra playing time? Because there's going to be a lack of players to, you know, be on these spring training teams. Uh, Alvarez is listed as a DH on the MLB website for spring training. Is that because he has not played at all in the catcher role? I do believe that's correct. I don't think he's played any defensive uh, snaps, as it were, as a catcher. <laughs> I mean, they've got to, yeah, they've got to give him that. So at least once Tavares is out for the World Baseball Classic, I mean, he's here for spring training. Like he's he's got to get reps in defense. Um. So yeah. So I mean, our young players have a lot of hope, a lot of promise. Um. But you know, they're they're not the only ones fighting for roster spots. We have some. Uh, veterans who are taking some spots at spring training right now who also want to get on the roster. Um, to name two, uh, Abraham Almonte and Tim LaCastro 
Abraham Almonte, 33 years old, Tim McCaster, 30 years old. So these are some of the veterans coming in who have been in the majors for a while, but are also tearing the cover off the ball um, or stealing a lot of bags. And they are also trying to get on the Mets opening day roster. So tell me about Abraham Almonte. <laughs> tell me about it. this man has been, has I'm been hitting like his, 500. I'm pulling up his stats. Give me a second. Abraham Almonte, as Eric said, is tearing the cover off the ball. He's only has 14 at bats so far, so he's playing sparingly, I think primarily um, in right field. Um, But he's got, he's batting 500 in those 14 at bats. He's, that's, in addition, he's got four walks. His on base percentage is an absurd 650. Again, if you include the walks, that's only 17 plate appearances. Uh, So obviously, small sample size, but he's, he's handling that spot really well so far. Yeah, he's been in the league ten years. He's definitely vying to keep his spot. I mean, he's been a, he's been a journeyman. He's played for well, like out seven teams besides the Mets. So Mets are going to be his eighth team. I mean, yeah, the guy the guy wants to play baseball. He's stuck around this far. I'd say uh, he yeah, he wants to he wants to be a team player. And um, I, I think it's really good to see this out of him and both of Castro because, like I mentioned last uh, last week, I feel like outfield was one of the positions that we were weak at in terms of depth. If these guys are hitting the ball this well, I don't know how well they're doing in the field, but you know, this potentially gives Tommy Pham a run for his money. Cause I haven't really heard much out of him for this spring training, but these guys are both hitting over 300. I think, um, who is it? Oh, I think Almonte is hitting like 450, almost 500. Yeah, Monte's hitting 500 right now, and Lacastro's hitting 350. Fam has two hits in 19 at bats for a whopping <laughs> 105. That's gonna be tough. That's and you know, tough. that was my my hot take last week was that Lacastro is gonna win that fourth spot. And uh, Eric, you said he's probably gonna play that Jankowski role, uh, maybe mm-hmm. the Gore role. And you know, to that Gore role, he's stolen five bases so far uh, this spring, and that's only with seven hits and a walk so he's only gotten on base eight times and he has five stolen bases and four of those uh hits were doubles so he's only been on first five four times Jeez. and he's got five he's got five bags it's all right bonkers. you know maybe this is the trey turner that we didn't sign <laughs> that's right um yeah so these these two are going to be also fighting for these final spots um whether it's fam or rough who doesn't make the final roster it might be one of these guys or the young guys so we will see um the uh i guess the last thing we wanted to cover was i know we were all excited about kodai singh as ghost fork and his first appearance on the mound um it looked he looked pretty good um we finally got to see it um in his first inning he walked two batters then got out of it in his next inning he struck out one and gave up a home run so um, you know, it's his first time on a on a major league mound in a in a live game. Um, I was listening to his interview with the press afterwards, and he was saying that he was initially so excited to face some of those Cardinals hitters, especially he said the three and the four hitters who I imagine were Arenado and Goldschmidt. Then he said once he got it, he was once he got on the mound, he was um, he was a little uh, uh, he was paying a lot of attention to the pitch clock and 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 having to control his mechanics that way. So. I imagine it'll be an adjustment um, in addition to 
you know, whole new, whole new team. Um, but I'm excited. I mean, some of the clips from his, his, his outing were really nice. Yeah, I, I, I watched um, a video online of like each and every one of his pitches, just like one right after the other. And in the first two batters were the ones that he walked. Like you could see that, like he was kind of settling in. And after he got out of that jam, he was, he was painting corners. I think that that one home run was like kind of a lucky one, but like it kind of just snuck over the left field wall in the corner. But, you know, some of his pitches really look like, you know, he was hitting the corners and the ghost fork, you know, it just, it dropped so hard. Like I can't imagine anybody's going to have an easy time hitting that one. Woof, woof. Yeah, that, that was a fun clip to watch on repeat. That ghost fork just die over there. And then he dials it up with he dialed up with like a 98 mile an hour fastball on the next batter. So you know, right. if, you, if you're expecting 98 and then you get 82 in the dirt, it's uh, <laughs> going to cause a lot of headaches. Yeah, I know the, the balls are smaller and a little more grippy in the Japanese league, but the mounds are also not as high and steep, like sloped. So I wonder if they, he actually makes up for some of that with and gets maybe gets a little extra power on those fastballs uh, from the steeper slope in the mound. It'll be interesting to see throughout the year and kind of see how those numbers track. I agree. That is interesting. And I have to say, I think that Senga is one of the best interview personalities I've seen uh, from a player whose English is not their first language, especially. I think that he is fun to listen to. And I think that he's engaging and he thinks he feels like he's perfect for the New York market. I agree. I mean, he's he's a star. I mean, he was he's a great player. He he says his piece. Then so far, I've seen the translator, um, you know, relay it, and he's just kind of standing there, kind of smiling and giggling, and like waiting for people to react to what he said. Uh, I'm really into it. I think he he'll 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 live in the New York moment really well. Do you remember what he said when he was first interviewed about how his ghost fork became such a good pitch? I don't practice. I feel like that's such a perfect New York answer. <laughs> yeah, um, seeing him like in these interviews, it kind of reminds me of Hideki Matsui when he came up with the Yankees. You know, like big international player coming in for like a New York market. He's got that kind of presence. I hope he plays better than Hideki Matsui. If he's as successful as Hideki Matsui was in America, I'll be pretty happy. We're pretty good. We're pretty yeah. good. Uh, all right, so I think that kind of wraps up our wrap of spring training so far. So I think we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Women's History Month a little bit and talk about the Mets ownership history, as well as uh, talk about our feelings for opening day. And we'll talk. see you then, I guess. We're back from break, um, and we're going to jump into our second half of this this week's episode. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Steve, who is going to fill us in and give us a little history about some of our uh ownership history um specifically joan payson the first owner of the new york mets steve yeah so you know in honor of women's history uh month and international women's day which is tomorrow the 8th of march we're going to talk a little bit about our history as the mets and i'm going to talk really before i start that i'm going to give a nod to the first female owner of any mlb team who is helen Britton, who became an owner of the st louis cardinals in 1911 when her husband died, I'm sorry, her father died and she inherited the team. So fast forward a couple of decades to the 50s and we get Joan Whitney Payson, 
Joan Whitney Payson or Mrs. Payson comes from a super wealthy family that married another super wealthy family. And both of their families had played a big role in making America what it is today and big, big oil, big tobacco, big steel. They helped, they were in politics in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And you might've heard the name Whitney before because there's a famous New York museum named after Joan's aunt, who's also named Joan, family name. Hmm. <laughs> in 1917, Joan's uncle died and left $66 million to her father. And in 1917, when you adjust for inflation, that comes about to $1.5 billion today. So she wow. was flushed with cash. Wow. Her father took that money and made it into a lot more money. Uh, she eventually inherited that money and used a lot of it to help contribute to education, to medicine, to schools. A lot of the uh, hospitals and schools still bear her name. She gave a ton of money to philanthropic causes uh, much of the frustration of the IRS because they didn't get the money. Uh, as I mentioned, she married a influential lawyer. Her uh, name is Charles Payson. So you get Joan pa Whitney Payson. And I don't know much about him, but he wasn't the owner of the New York Mets. So who cares? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think uh, it's a little known fact that she, you know, our first owner was a woman. I think a lot of people here you know, think of the creation of the Mets and they think of William Shea and rightfully so, you know, that we had a whole stadium named after him. We still have a bridge in our field named after him. He did play a major role in getting a team back to New York, the National League team specifically back to New York. Uh, but after he got a team to New York, that was kind of his end of involvement in the Mets. And Joan Payson took over from there. Uh, she loved sports. She had a financial interest in racing, boxing, and baseball, which were the three highest grossing sports in, at the time. She was known to frequent nightclubs and comedy clubs. And just by all accounts, she was a pretty badass woman. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah. She, uh, she was kind of one of those like New York socialites that, you know, the papers, because there was no internet wrote about, and there was nothing else to talk about during the time. Um, but she was a longtime baseball fan, a huge fan of the New York Giants and uh, Willie Mays specifically. And at a bar one day in Florida, she was sitting next to a man named M. Donald Grant, who eventually became the president of the Mets. Uh, she was talking to him about her lifelong dream of owning a baseball team. And lo and behold, he had one share of the New York baseball Giants. Uh -huh. Without letting him leave the bar, she bought that share of the Giants from him right there and then. He she bankrolled him to buy more of the Giants, and between the two of them, they wound up owning ten percent of the Giants at some point. Um, but ten percent of the Giants means basically nothing because they had you know the other people you know the, the major owner had more than fifty percent, so it really didn't matter. She was the lone dissenting vote in moving the Giants to San Francisco. She wanted to keep a team in New York. She loved baseball like I said, and there was no ESPN, there was no internet, there was no MLB.tv. Once the, the Giants moved to San Francisco, that was kind of it for her. She got the box score in the paper, but wasn't enough. Uh, when the politicians and William Shea specifically started strong-arming and blackmailing the league into creating more teams, she helped bankroll the effort by fun helping fund a essentially fake Baseball league, she and William Shea and a couple other people pretended to make a league, essentially, just to scare MLB 
They got a bunch of politicians to say that they were going to, you know, take some of the legal protections that MLB had away so this new league could form. And the MLB finally said, fine, fine, we'll give you your franchise. They expanded to the Astros, the Angels. I think the Tigers moved out to Detroit from St. Louis at the time or Washington at the time. I don't quite remember. Um, And then, of course, the New York Mets. She, again, loved her baseball, loved her Mets. She tried the whole time. Um, She was the owner to get Willie Mays back in New York, um, eventually succeeding. But we'll get to talk about that in a little bit. She wanted to name the team originally the New York Meadowlarks, which uh, is a type of bird. uh, There's a couple problems with that, though, is that one... The color of that bird is yellow and black. And as I think we all know that that's a Pittsburgh color and pretty much every sports franchise from Pittsburgh, including the Pirates, which already existed, had that color scheme. Uh, Interesting thing about the Meadowlark as a bird, it actually was native to Flushing Meadows. Mm. So it actually is right around uh, Shea Stadium before Shea Stadium was built. I I need to go find myself a Meadowlark. I need to go bring my binoculars out (laughs) to Flushing Meadows and go see a Meadowlark. Love Uh bird history. (laughs) <laughs> I, I actually moved, I think the, the uh, Cardinals. We saw Cardinal the other day. Yeah, we have Cardinals in our backyard sometimes. Yeah. I see Cardinals and Blue Jays in New York. Pretty I cool. had a Blue Jay in my backyard yesterday. They're yeah, very pretty. My, uh, from the window up here, Washington Heights gets all kind of things. Uh, but... No meadow lark. Unfortunately, no meadow larks. I mean, I don't uh, even know what a meadow, I don't know what a meadow lark looks like, but I have not seen one. I don't think. I think they're very nice looking birds. I'm learning now. They um most of the the uh, natural habitat that it inhabited was actually cut out uh because of the construction of Flushing Meadows, so <laughs> it would have been a little bit ironic to call them that's the Meadowlarks as it turned out. Mm. Um, it's a very Mets thing to do though. <laughs> <laughs> when do we become ornithologists? <laughs> um. So next on our ornithology podcast, we've got the. <laughs> New York Metalworks. Uh, but no, she decided instead of just deciding what the name was going to be, she, because she loved baseball and was so distraught by the baseball leaving New York, that she was going to leave it up to New York fans to determine who, what the name of their franchise is going to be. She created a committee with the wives of all of her other um, owners. She was the only female owner of the New York Mets and the majority owner. Um, and that committee picked 10 names that they wanted to choose for the Mets. And Joan Payson decided to take out an ad in the newspaper, put those 10 names in, and put in a write-in option and ask people to send in their vote of what we want to name the new New York franchise. Little did they know that people like write-in votes. <laughs> and out of the about 1,000 people that responded to the survey... About 600 of them wrote in their own response, obviously greatly diluting the pool of those 10 choices. Hmm. So about 60% of the people who voted didn't like any of the 10 choices, (laughs) pick their own choice. And with a resounding 70 votes, the New York Mets was the name of the New York Mets. (laughs) So approximately 3% of the people who voted (laughs) like the idea of calling them the New York Mets. And here we are today. Um, I mean, like any good vote, like any good vote in American politics, 3% usually will win. (laughs) You know, it'll take the cake. 
What are you saying, Dave? Two and three. What's that? We have a number two and three. I believe the number two was the New York Skyliners. Oh, thank God. Um, I do not know what number three was. Uh, I do know among the 10, there was the New York Jets was an option. Uh, mm. Most of my people reportedly dismissed that because uh, Jets doesn't mean anything. Uh, shout out well, to my both, New York football Jets. They um, both played at Shea. <laughs> they did. They, they were did. Cool. They were um, linked. What else did they have? They had the New York uh, Avengers, which was a nod to the Dodgers and Giants leaving. Uh, they, had the ah. New York, they had the New York Rebels, which I think uh, they're a couple miles north of the Mason-Dixon line for that one. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, I think that those are the only ones that I remember off the top of my head. I'm sure, you know, like I said, there was 10. And uh, I would love to hear what some of the write-in votes were, honestly. Yeah. I think uh... <laughs> that would have been funny. The Yankees versus the Rebels, you know, uh, that would have been like a real uh, homage to the Great War. They, I'm curious they, if that's why the name was chosen or included. They they would have been hard to uh hard to root for, as it turns out. <laughs> I will say I like the Mets out of all of them. I mean, maybe I'm just biased because I've been rooting <laughs> for the Mets my whole life, but the Metropolitan is pretty nice. Uh, Skyliner sounds pretty bad. I do think it's a little indoctrination. I think if we uh had come up with the New York Skyliners, we might have felt the same way about the Mets. But what is a Skyliner? You know, like a Metropolitan is just a person, you know, just someone who lives in New York. What is a Skyliner? I it's guess. like saying like the Philadelphia Phillies. Like, what is a Philly? Uh, yeah, that's true. That's you know, <laughs> the uh, they're, they're actually so it's funny that the temporary name for the New York team until they decided on their name was the New York Metropolitan Baseball Club. So it didn't actually wind up far off from that temporary name. And uh, I feel like I speak for all Mets fans when I feel like we're a temporary. We've had a temporary identity ever since. Mm. <laughs> It sounds more um, like a like a soccer team, like the New York Metropolitan Football Club. It does sound like that. It does sound like that. Um, NYC FC. Speaking of which, they're actually building a stadium right next to uh, City Field. That's for NYC FC. That's right. Yeah. One other quick, you know, cool thing about uh, Joan Payson before we, you know, move on from her is she was the first woman in American history to own a professional sports franchise where she bought it with her own money. Uh, every other woman, and there was about five or six female uh, owners before the before she bought the Mets. Every other woman bought, you know, and either inherited the team or uh, from a father or an uncle. Uh, but Joan Payson, first person, first woman in American history to buy her own professional sports franchise. I think that's pretty cool. I think it's uh, something that, you know, a lot of Mets fans don't know. Um, it's not something that's widely publicized as part of our history. Uh, we have, I think we have a Joan Payson gate in City Field, one of the VIP gates, and she's got a plaque in the Mets Hall of Fame. Um, oh, I had one other, you know, cool note for her was that, uh, you know, her favorite, like I said, her favorite player was Willie Mays. And she pursued him kind of relentlessly for her whole time owning the Mets and eventually as we all know, we got she got Willie Mays in a New York Mets uniform in his age 40 and 41 season when he was kind of breaking down. His last but, two seasons, yep. Yep, she brought him back to New York. Um, and she made a promise to him, which was an interesting promise, that because you've only played for us for a few years, I can't retire your number, but I promise you no one else will ever wear number 24. And if you didn't know, and I'm sure a couple of you are thinking, well, wait a second, I remember a couple of 24s on the Mets. 
That's right. The Wilpons, of course, broke that promise. Um, they gave the right shortly after they won the World Series, they gave that number to a player named Kelvin Trove, whom I'd never heard of before looking this up. He played one season for the Mets in a pretty poor capacity. Um, later on, that number was given Ricky Henderson for a few years, and of course, our favorite Robinson Cano, who wore in honor of Jackie Robinson, just the reverse number. Uh, but eventually, Steve Cohen fulfilled his promise, uh, fulfilled the promise that Joan Payson gave, and retired that number twenty-four, and no will wear that number again. Um, it's actually a cool, you know, comparison between Joan Payson and Steve Cohen because they were both huge fans of baseball and their team, and had absurd amounts of money, and just threw it at their team because they loved the game. Um, yeah, so that's that's really all I have on Joan Payson, but I think uh, that kind of segues next into our uh, current, you know, not women's history, but our women's current ownership and involvement in the New York Mets. So, Ray, you want to take us away with that? Yeah, I, I definitely gonna pick up over there. Um, I just want to say I didn't really know much about Joan Hayes Payson before you told me about her, and I think that was pretty interesting because my dad grew up around like that same time period and you know i constantly hear stories about the dodgers and the giants leaving and you know having that void that was left in new york baseball that the people that really didn't jive with the yankees like you know they felt kind of like left out there and it's pretty cool that you know a strong woman like Joan would come up and really, you know, spearhead bringing baseball back into not the Bronx. And like another strong, like you mentioned just before this, like a strong woman that's doing that now, um, she might be flying a little like beneath the radar, but her name's Alex Cohen, Steve Cohen's wife, you know, we hear all about Uncle Stevie spending all of this money on our team, and we love it. You know, he really changed the atmosphere of the team. It's a breath of fresh air to get ownership that doesn't mind sticking their hands in their pockets, you know, and also being realistic. I, I think before the season started, uh, Steve Cohen said something like, oh, like, just the fact that we're signing all these players, like money doesn't guarantee a championship. You know, we're only putting ourselves in a good position to set ourselves up for a postseason run. And I think that this ownership is is excellent. But sticking to the to the theme of Women's History Month, Steve's wife, uh, she goes by the name of Tia Alex. Uh, she's of Puerto Rican descent. She was born in Harlem but grew up most of her life in Washington Heights. Uh, her and Steve met early 90s, I believe, uh, married in 92. Uh, Steve Cohen was a lifelong Mets fan, if I'm not mistaken, and so was Alex. Alex's father, Ralph Garcia, was actually a diehard Mets fan. And if you thought, like, if you're not aware, go on Instagram, um... Alex Cohen is very prominent on Instagram and TikTok, I believe. She's constantly doing outreach to the fans, uh, the players, the community. 
And her dad, Ralph, goes by the nickname of uh, Mets Grandpa. So it's always nice to see a uh, winning one for the big guy. You know, a lot like um, Joan Payson, Alex is deeply, deeply involved in philanthropy. Uh, she's donated almost $1 billion to various charities, some of which goes to kids, education, uh, hunger and poverty, community enrichment, healthcare, um, rebuilding the environment, mental health and well-being for veterans, medical research in areas of COVID and Lyme disease, and, you know, you just could see that, like, her heart's in the right place. And all the work that she does trying to build up her community and stuff, she's also trying to build up, like, the whole family atmosphere of the Mets. I started following her on Instagram last year, and she's at the majority of the baseball games. Um, If you follow, like, if you watch her Instagram stories, you'll see for, like, the first, like, two hours before the game, like she's walking through like behind the scenes and whatnot. But then as soon as like the game starts, like she's up in the promenade section, she's walking into the seats. She's giving tickets away to like families. Like she'll see a bunch of kids and it's like, Oh, you guys are getting upgraded behind home plate. So like in the past we would see like, you know, Will Pons, Will Pons resolve uh, reserving those kind of seats for like people with big money. And then you have this woman out here just, you know, giving it to a family that she thinks, you know, would appreciate it more than the, than the next. And when people ask Steve Cohen about this, like, oh, like, you know, how do you feel about, like, your wife spending money? And he, he one of his quotes is like, Tia, uh, Alex? No, she does not spend a lot of money. No, she gives it away, you know, because she's giving it away to a good cause. And, you know, I feel like that's one of the things that really brings like a welcoming atmosphere to the Mets. You know, when you have so much community outreach, it feels more like like a family-friendly welcoming environment. I think I saw like a video online uh with Alex going out to dinner with Kate Upton like the weekend after Verlander signed the contract with the Mets. So not only is she like, you know, involved with the Mets like the fans and the you know the experience in the stadium but she's involved with the the players and their families you know so i might be like reading a little bit too much into it but when you're trying to sign a player to a big contract we're talking about this with like like young players last week i believe if you don't give them a reason to like want to leave you give them like everything that feels good you get happy players happy employees you know Happy players hit the ball. Happy players want to stay with the team. Maybe like if we did a better job at making a, oh, who was it? Who was uh, who was the dark? Knight? I can't think of his name. Harvey. Harvey. Yeah. If, if we made Matt Harvey a little bit more like welcomed and like in a family atmosphere, he wouldn't be spending all those nights in the nightclubs. Yeah, he was lost cause. <laughs> we'd hope so. We'd hope so. Matt Harvey. He was out fighting crime with his nose, you know? (laughs) I think a lot of that's really cool to hear. I think, you know, I've I've heard a little bit about her before, but I haven't, you know, obviously the in-depth that you kind of just gave. Um, Cool to hear that she kind of gives those seats away to people at the stadium. That's 
you know, super awesome. Nothing makes, I think, a game better than something like that, right? Can you imagine that experience? Um, I think it's super cool that they've been together for so long. I think it's, you know, almost 30 years now, 31 years, you said they've been together. As, as old as we are. That's, just, that's, just, that's half their lifetime. Or at least I know Cohen's about 65 years old. So that's, that's pretty wild. Um, and also, obviously, great that he's a Met fan. He married a Met fan. You know, I personally don't know that I could ever marry a Yankee fan. So <laughs> <laughs> good, good on Cohen. For, uh... I think what you were saying, Ray, about um, Alex's effect on players signing, I, I don't think you're making it up. I think it's actually a huge part of why players sign. I think um, around the Lindor trade and sign a couple of years ago, I remember reading somewhere that it was either her, like Alex's family was from the same uh, part of Puerto Rico that Lindor is from. So that was a big part or that was a, w- a way they connected. Um, I, I know that was, it was also in the talks with Correa this past off season too. There was more connection yeah. there. Diaz has come over. Um, there's been all these jokes that the Mets are just turning into the Puerto Rican national team um, <laughs> because it's just Alex Cohen loves to have Puerto Rican players. Um, but I think, yeah, I think Steve, Obviously, is you know from his career is is able to bankroll the Mets, but the operation of the Mets, Alex is just as big of a part of that operation um, as Steve because she really, like you said, has puts in the attention for the players and the fans and wants to make it like a good place to be and not just a destitute organization. So she is as much as part of the success of the team as Steve is. Yeah, I I agree. I didn't really know a lot about that, but it's really good to hear. I mean, I know we were talking the other weeks about some of the other teams and the and at least and you know arbitrations and whatnot and signings. You know, like what did um the Brewers? What was it like? They didn't give um what's his Burns. name? They like give Corbin Burns, yeah, yeah, like a Cy Young winner. Like I mean, and Mets seem to conveniently avoid arbitration. It seems like, and you know, usually you know that's what they've been doing. It's not like they're really squibbling over dollars. And now with Cohen, and now they're taking people out, and they really want to make it more of a family environment um yeah it's really nice to see and i was going back to what you just said eric if she's making the team like uh really puerto rican that's not a big problem because go back to the 2000s weren't we like the los mets you know we we brought back the black jerseys last year so let's bring back los mets I was thinking the same thing when Eric said that, that, you know, the Mets got a lot of like, I think flack at the time for Omar Minaya, turn the, the GM at the time, turning us into Los Mets. And I'm going to say the same thing I was, I said back then win games. I don't care. Like, yeah. And didn't we get, we got Beltron too, you know, in games. <laughs> I mean, Pete Alonso, I saw an article there. He's learning Spanish. I mean, the league, a lot of players, they switch teams all the time through minor leagues. Like, there's a lot of Spanish-speaking players, like, in the league. I mean, Pete Alonso himself is trying to learn Spanish. I mean, that's, I know, that's great to see. Like, good good for us. Yeah, I think over 30% of the league is of Spanish descent or from a Spanish country. Um, and, you know, I think a good chunk of them are primary Spanish speakers. I think it's almost, you know, malpractice for players to not at least know a little bit of Spanish here and there to get by with their teammates right i mean this is an international game sports are are just you know a transcend culture i think that it's good to see um win games i don't care what language you speak (laughs) you see that in soccer all the time you know if you're playing international soccer you're learning two or three different languages just to keep up with the people that you're on the field with 
Good like, can you, imagine, can you imagine refereeing an international soccer game or even a World Baseball Classic game? Do you have to, do you need bilingual umpires and referees? I never considered well, I, that before. That's I think question. they played um, the first exhibition game yesterday for the World Baseball Classic, and it was against local Taiwanese teams. So it's not even, it's just like people are speaking Taiwanese, like versus major leaguers from all over the world. You know, you have four or five different languages that play. If anybody in China is listening, we mean Chinese Taipei, right? <laughs> I I thought it was, I thought they said Taiwanese. I'm I could be I'm, mistaken. I'm, I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. There's like so much going on over there. Like I can't keep up. Exactly. Um, so I I think that that probably wraps up our our brief little walkthrough of Mets ownership, past and present, um, and celebration of Women's History Month and the badass women who have come. And made the Mets organization truly a great place to be a fan, um, even in the even in the dark days, even in the dark days. Um, David, yes. Before we continue, I just um, I just wanted to go back. I looked up this um, Kelvin Torv, and apparently <laughs> the equipment manager actually realized his mistake mid-season about giving away Willie Mays's number. So mid-season, I mean, August 17th, during a road trip, he actually switched his number to number 39. They realized their mistake, and I don't know if it was someone just someone just messed up there. So he did better with Maze's uniform though, number, though. So that is an excellent note, David. That, <laughs> Thank you very that's much. That's excellent reporting. I super appreciate that. Not a problem. What they didn't say is Willie Mays showed up in the dugout after the game and <laughs> said, hey, man, you're wearing my number. You better take that jersey off your back. Any word why we gave it to uh, Ricky or uh, Cano? There are a lot better players. That's what my <laughs> guess is when they actually deserve. <laughs> That's a fair point. That's a fair point. I think uh, Ricky Henderson deserves to wear whatever number he wants to wear. Uh, Torv batted 545, though, in his short stint with May's number. So <laughs> Okay, okay. <laughs> How, how much was that sample size? I, I don't know. I, I'm really <laughs> struggling to get the numbers for the 80s <laughs> on a whim, but I'll get back to you on that. But ex- excellent reporting, David. I that, that's a great correction. Um, that's our stack guy. I just you're just our, the Steve Gelbs of uh, <laughs> of the group. <laughs> the tidbits. I love the tidbits. All right. So shall we move into our final little segment on opening day? Looking forward. Unless you have any more. Woo! Trove, but in day <laughs> treasure trove. Anything in the treasure trove, David? No, nothing else about Kelvin Trove. No, no, that's it. I'll, I'll go back to you next week. We got a whole Kelvin Trove episode. <laughs> Ooh, I do fun, think it's fact, horror, though, but... <laughs> fun fact I forgot to mention in my Alex Cohan uh, expose, she follows me on Instagram. So, uh, you know, Ooh, I I kind of I got a shout out to the, the owners. Yeah, tell her, tell her we talked about it on Foolishly Faithful, the Mets podcast. Well, she, be fair, she follows most Mets fans. So if you guys <laughs> follow her, she'll probably follow you back. But, you know, that's that's the outreach that she's making. You know, the little men, the little men get seen. Maybe the little podcast will be seen. There you go. Maybe. There you go. Maybe. Someone's got to make us an Instagram account. Um. Okay, let's, let's move into this final bit about opening day. Opening day. Opening day. Oh, the home opener, at least. Will be oh. Thursday, April sixth, at one ten p.m. Yep. yep. Ray, you are going to opening day. Is that correct? I will be in attendance. This is my sixteenth opening day in a row. Let's Ooh. go. That's, That's awesome. Go. 
That's amazing. The, the, those numbers might be slightly skewed from COVID. Like I, that might be like 14 or 15. I, I think it's probably yeah. closer to 14. Well, it's but, true. COVID, COVID. We'll give you the break on COVID. I think everyone I've been to deserves every a break. single opening day since 2008. So I'm going to go with 16 years of opening days. I'm, I may have to try to take a day off of work and join you. Although I just started a new job. I got very fortunate. Um, as a teacher, I get spring break off and opening day is actually the first day of Passover. So schools will be out. Well, maybe I can uh, take off for quote unquote. Mazel tov. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Holy Thursday, first day of Passover, spring well, break I begins. I won't be able to eat any baseball begins. Right. All these beautiful things. Um, well, I, speaking of opening day and the home opener and getting prepared for it, um, I saw a picture, you may have seen it as well, of the new scoreboard at City Field where they took down. If you remember, the, the the scoreboard in center field had a big screen and then some big sort of banner ads that were printed around it. All of those banner ads have been taken down and they have now filled up the rest of that enormous sign beyond the, the center field seats with one ginormous looking scoreboard. Um, so I'm looking forward to a very bright night game experience. Not to say I'll like it, but the screens are, are there are so many screens at City Field now. Um, even last season it, it's crazy i think last season i felt a little overwhelmed by it to be honest uh, all the new screens on every little kind of strip of land that they could put it on um the scoreboard is monstrous i don't know if how many people have seen the uh the pictures of it yet um i think it might be almost as big as the outfield hmm. um yeah it, it, it's pretty crazy it's pretty but it's uh cool to see that they're putting money into the stadium keeping up with it keeping it modern but um Screens me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they also look like they're moving in. Um, I don't know if they're moving in the fences, but they're definitely doing some work in the right field corner where it was like the Mo zone and that sort of party party area behind that mesh wall to the right of the bullpen. Uh, I think they're making that a new party deck. They're also doing something in the second deck and left field closer to center field where they're moving a whole section. I think they're doing some something um, another party area as well. Um, but yeah, it looks like, you know, the Cohen's are investing the money to increase the, or, or to make the, the game watching and, you know, the game going atmosphere a lot better as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, every, I guess, you know, in 2023, that means more screens. <laughs> I would love to watch baseball on an old dirt field, you know, with no screens, <laughs> but how will they, how the infielders can stand? <laughs> exactly. Uh, they actually, so you, you mentioned that they're moving the fence and they are, they're moving it in by about eight and a half feet uh, in the oh. field. Yeah. Are they taking away that little, um, the little jut, the little like. That, that is the divot? idea. Yeah. They're, they're trying to take away the little jut. Interesting. Uh, which is about 50 feet of left, of right field. 50 feet of right field they're taking yeah. away. Is, they're moving it in. Yeah. Wow. Okay. More home runs. More home runs, more home runs, more screens. Getting ready, um, uh, getting Volga back a shorter porch. That's right. Uh, just tuck them over that wall. Potentially more seats in the outfield too. You know, when they move in the walls, you know, you're creating more room for people to sit or stand. Oh, I'm sure that's the main. That's true. Why. Yeah, yeah. I think the whole thing. Like, excited. They're they're making like a whole section section there to do some uh, extra partying. Yeah. Maybe it'd be like one of those like cool stadiums where you get like a you know a hot tub or a swimming pool like in right field. <laughs> Get a little splash home runs. Maybe a nice bath for the polar bear. Oh. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> um. All right. Well, 
I think that about wraps up our our episode for today. Um, we've covered a lot. We've covered spring training. We've covered Joan Payson, Alex Cohen, and opening day. Um, I hope. Oh, we um, David. I, I would just like to um secondly follow up. You guys were asking for the stats on Kelvin Torb's brief stint with the number twenty four. Um, he actually went six hits and eleven at bats. So small sample okay, size. Okay, okay. However. Still six for up and eleven at bats. It's all about three games. He wore that number twenty four for eleven bats too long, is what it sounds. Like. <laughs> he Correct. he was a bench piece, so I think he played in. Uh, you know, it was a long time before. Okay, it wasn't just the first three games of the season. Kelvin Torb. What's his name? Kelvin Torb. Kelvin Tor. T o r e. T o r v e. Torv. Torv. Kelvin Torv. I actually feel like I've heard that name. I'll look him up after too. And I and I ask all of our listeners to look up Kelvin Torv as well. He deserves he deserves the recognition for going six for eleven. I kind of like how every episode had like that one obscure player. It was like who was it last week? The crow hopper guy. Oh, Carter Carter Caps. Just Caps. Carter Caps. Caps. It should become like a recurring thing. We always had that one obscure player that everybody's like scratching their who's this guy. Well, yeah, we'll do our best to keep digging them up because they 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 live in my psyche way down there. So I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll try to crawl them up every time. Rent free, rent free. <laughs> okay, um, so I think that'll wrap up this episode. Um, as always, if you have any fan mail, complaints, critiques, ideas for new segments, p- please feel free to email us at foolishlyfaithfulmetspod at gmail dot com. Um, this has been episode five. On behalf of Steve, David, and Ray. Thank you for listening, and we will hear you, or just kidding, you'll hear us next time. Take care. Bye-bye. See ya.